Welcome to a special episode of On The Turnbuckle here on mypodcasthouse.com. Brent Welsh joins me in the studio. Welshy, how are you? I'm really well. Aren't they all special interviews? Well, uh, they are, but this one is going to be a... uh, It's a bonus. It's a bonus. Bonus. So if you buy this Thursday's episode for free, we'll give you this for free as well. Uh, Eric Bischoff, what a... An amazing character and an amazing man he's been in the world of wrestling. And uh, a lot of people owe their love of wrestling to some of his concepts and ideas. Well, I know that for me personally, I was a lapsed wrestling fan until my parents got Foxtel when I was about 18. And I was flicking through on a Friday night and uh, there's Hulk Hogan wearing black and white, um, acting like a bad guy. And that's what piqued my interest and got me back into into my fandom. So I've, I've got Eric Bischoff to thank for all of that. Yeah, exactly. Can you imagine being a guy who has the availability of someone like a Hulk Hogan at his disposal and, and utilises it in a totally different role to what he'd been seen as before? The, the darling of wrestling, eat your vitamins, say your prayers, do all that sort of stuff, and then to throw a bloke into a, a full-on heel role like that. I oh, know, unbelievable. You've got balls, don't you? Yeah, but not to mention uh, using one of your top stars, Sting, changing his gimmick and his look and then telling him not to say a word for 12 months and not wrestle a match. Yeah. That's, in old school thought, death of, death of your character and your career. So, But really, a, a Sting wouldn't have had the longevity that he had if that hadn't happened. All right, Eric Bischoff is coming out for three shows here in Australia in June. On the 21st of June, you can catch him at the Sydney Factory Theatre. On Saturday, the 22nd of June, at the Foundry in Brisbane. And then here in Melbourne at the Thornbury Theatre on Sunday, the 23rd of June. All 18-plus shows and tickets are on sale now. And Eric Bischoff joins us on the line for a chat. G'day, Eric. How are you? Better than I deserve, quite honestly. <laughs> doing very well, but thank you for asking. How are you guys doing? No, we're we're really well. It's, yeah. it's early in the morning here, so we're uh, we're ready to attack our day. I like it. That's yeah. the way you should. That's the way you should pull when you get up in the morning. You should want to attack something, and it's best to attack the day. Hopefully it won't attack you back. Uh, exactly right. And uh, you normally don't get a lawsuit from uh, attacking the day. You're exactly right. Hey, uh, Eric, we uh, so glad that you joined us for a chat and we really appreciate it. And we're going to get into some stuff very shortly. But I thought off the top we might as well have a chat about the uh, the show that's coming out to Australia and, and give that a, a bit of a pump straight off the top. Is it a, a warts and all show? Is it something that people will walk out of there thinking, gee whiz, I did not know that? That's it's really interesting you bring that up right off the top. That's my goal. You know, when people ask me, you know, what is, this, what is a live show like? And I generally tell them it's about 50% comedy. And when I say comedy, I'm not a comedian. But inherently, the nature of our business and the stories that we have to tell, especially stories that, you know, we're just not going to tell on the podcast for various reasons, are inherently funny stories involving people that everybody knows. So it's just a lot of fun and there's a lot of laughter and comedy uh, involved. But for me personally, um, I, I enjoy, and it usually happens during the question and answer format, that part of the show, because I've found at least most wrestling fans that are very serious, hardcore wrestling fans, are probably more interested in the business of the wrestling business sometimes than they are in what they see on television. They want to know why something happened or how it happened. 
in, in detail. And I try to walk away from a show achieving two very, very important goals. One is I want people to laugh and have fun, whether they're laughing at me because I'm getting my balls busted or whatever. It doesn't matter. I want people to have a really, really fun time. And I want to have fun. It's, a, it, it's enjoyable for me. But the, the, I think the most important thing to me is that people walking people walk away from my show with a, a much better understanding of why wrestling is so popular in the world. Why is it that you know professional wrestling dominates you know global entertainment in the way that it does? Why is it professional wrestling, since the beginning of television time, has always been one of the most successful forms of television? And I think you know this kind of a live show gives us the opportunity to get into kind of the granular discussion and detailed discussions as to why certain decisions were made or how something was achieved or why something failed. And oftentimes that, that, that part of the business, very few people discuss. And, you know, Bruce Pritchard is a very, very dear friend of mine. And, and there's a lot of other friends of mine that have podcasts, but they didn't have the experience in the business side of the wrestling business that I did. You know, Bruce Pritchard had much more um, experience dealing with talent than I did, for example. So he's got a lot more stories, you know, regarding talent. But my stories, uh, there's plenty of stories about talent and, and backstage antics, but I really delved into the business of the wrestling business in a way that very few people can, other than probably Vince McMahon himself. And the relationship with, Cod, uh, with Conrad and the, and the podcast, how did that uh, initially come about? Uh, Conrad called me, and, you know, I had met Conrad through Bruce Pritchard um, long before we started doing the podcast, and visited, uh, visited with him at his home in Alabama, and got along fine, and about six months later, Conrad called me and said, hey, w- would you like to do a podcast, and I, obviously I knew he and, he and Bruce were very, very successful, and I was interested, but I, I said, Conrad, what, you know, what kind of a format do you see? What, how would you see this working? And when Conrad told me he really wanted to spend a lot of time, you know, breaking down and detailing the Monday Night Wars and all of the things that occurred, not just, you know, who won what match and who who came up with what finish and all that kind of stuff. That's obvious. Everybody does that. Conrad was really determined to get into a, a, a more serious discussion about the business of the wrestling business and the Monday Night Wars. And I, my first reaction was, God, I don't know, man. We've been talking about this stuff for 20-some-odd years. How can people still be interested? I, I, I didn't think they would be. And Conrad, Conrad was correct. He, he assured me that with his ideas you know, regarding the format and the way he wanted to approach it, he was confident that we could produce a show that people would be excited about. So I thought, well, you know what? I've got nothing to lose. I'm just going to give it a try. And if it works, great. And if it doesn't, well, so what? We tried. And literally, after two or three episodes, we became the number two podcast wrestling podcast in the world, uh, right behind Bruce Pritchard. So that must uh, make us that must make us three. Then is it? <laughs> I'm sorry. That must make us three. Then does it? Well, three or four, yeah. <laughs> Uh, has the podcast gotten you any new heat with anyone or has it helped you to mend fences with people who've heard your side of the story? 
Um, <clears throat> that's a good question. I, I typically don't speak negatively about too many people. Um, those that I do, and I'm honest about everything as, as honest as I can be. Um, occasionally we'll get into a conversation about certain people that I feel very, very strongly about, but keep in mind, I've been listening to those same people bury me for the last 25 years. So whether they, you know, they get chapped ass or not, I don't really care. You know, I've already got heat with them, so it's no big deal. But for the most part, you know, my relationships with people that I've worked with previously and, and even people that I've never worked with, you know, has only gotten better over the years because we're, as we get older, we get wiser, we get smarter, um, we, we, we temper, you know, some of the things that we used to feel strongly about. And it's much easier for all of us now that we're kind of away from the business. But to directly answer your question, I don't think I've got any more heat with anybody. If anything, I've probably developed closer relationships because people hear my side of the story. You know, oftentimes, you know, with certain talent, Conan is a good example of this. You know, when we worked together, we didn't get along at all. And we had a very contentious relationship when we worked together. But after hearing my podcast and hearing my side of the story, you know, he reached out to me and invited me to be on his podcast. And now, now we get along great. So that's, you know, one example, I think, of just, you know, everybody just needs to hear the other side of the story. It's probably true in life. If uh, people haven't heard the podcast, it is called 83 Weeks, and of course it relates directly to the 83 consecutive weeks that uh, Monday Night Nitro beat Monday Night Raw in the Monday Night TV Wars. With the, the the thought of that, was it the initial set out of the, uh, the the TV wars? Was that to go out and absolutely destroy WWF at the time, or was it just to be the more preferred product for wrestling fans? Uh, neither, really. I think the original goal, when Tetron and I met, and he told me he wanted me to produce a a show that would go head to head with Monday Night Raw. I think the idea was more just to let everybody know that WCW was on the map. Um, during, you know, prior to that decision, you know, WCW was the number two wrestling company to the WWF. However, it was a, we we might as well have been 222. The gap between number mm-hmm. one and number two was so great that you know we could have been number 200. It wouldn't matter. And I think the uh, the original idea by going head to head was just to create awareness. The intent wasn't, we never really thought, you know, people that hear this may or may not believe me, and at this point I don't really care that much, but all we wanted to do was get on the map. We didn't really think that we could be better than the WWE or we would outperform them. I just wanted to have a show that was different and interesting enough that people would sample us. And I tell you know people all the time, it's a little bit like, if you were going, if, if if you two were going to open up a restaurant that serves seafood, chances are you would look for a neighborhood where people go to eat seafood. Yes, and and you 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 you, you want to go where the audience is or where the customers are, and that was the idea of going head to head. Now I, I will tell you, after about six or eight months, my feelings about that changed, 
And I definitely wanted to be the number one wrestling company in the world because I believed we could. We had had enough success in a short period of time, and it created a very, very exciting and unique momentum that I believed we had the ability to actually become number one. But becoming number one isn't the same as trying to destroy the competition. It may seem, you know, to the audience like that was my goal because of some of the silly stunts I was doing at the Mm -hmm. time, like giving away their finishes five minutes before the show started and, you know, making fun of them and doing all the crazy antics that I did. But all those great crazy antics were really designed just to get people talking. And and, and, And I knew if I could get them talking, I could get them to sample my product. And if I got them to sample my product, I believed that they would enjoy it. It really wasn't about putting the WWF out of business, although that was the narrative, and I understand why. And the big part of you winning for 83 weeks was the NWO and the creation of that. Uh, How long was that idea in process before you pulled the trigger on it? Before I pulled the trigger on the NWO? Yeah. You know, the idea had been forming very loosely in my mind for a couple of years. I had been spending a lot of time studying the wrestling product over in Japan. And there was a big difference, you know, in 93, 94, uh, when I was spending my time in Japan, the, the, the Japanese product was very serious. It was very reality-based. It was more about, they, they presented professional wrestling more as a sport and less as a theatrical kind of spectacle. Here in the United States, the WWS was very much like, you know, a circus. You know, all of the wrestling characters were garbage men. They were clowns. They were midgets. They were, you know, crazy doctors. You know, all, all of the characters had these kind of animated, cartoonish type of personas. Whereas over in Japan, it was it was treated very seriously. And the stories were, it was still scripted and it was still a story, but it was more believable and relatable to males 18 to 25 or 25 to 54. And in studying what was working in Japan, that's when the idea started very, very loosely forming in my mind a couple of years earlier. And it was just a matter of coincidence, really, that Scott Hall and Kevin Nash both became available. And if you know anything about Scott Hall and Kevin Nash, both of them had previously worked for WCW prior to me becoming president. They were disgruntled. They didn't feel like they were given opportunity they didn't feel like they were given what they refer to in the wrestling business as a push. So they left. They went to the WWF. They became big stars, which gave me the premise for the NWL. Now I have two guys who went off to the WW, who used to work in WCW, who were treated badly in their opinion. They went on to become big stars, and now they were coming back to get revenge. That was the premise of the NWL story. But it only happened because, like I said, I was thinking about a more reality-based story for some time, and then coincidentally, when those two became available, the light bulb went off in my head, and I said, okay, now's the time. Here's how we tell this story. And, and it worked. It, it was lightning in a bottle, as they say. And obviously, Hogan joins and Sting changes his, his uh, whole gimmick, and uh, that's what made me a wrestling fan again when I was 18. So I thank you for that. Well, you're welcoming a lot. It, it, it really changed everything. You know, and it wasn't, obviously the NWO was the most obvious thing and the most successful thing, the biggest thing that we did. 
But, you know, if you go back and you, you study, you know, what WWF was doing prior to Nitro, their business was very flat. It was actually the downward trend worldwide. Their ratings were very flat. Um, the, the attendance at their house shows was, was decreasing on a regular basis. Their show was taped. It was a very, uh, it was a formula that they've been using for almost a decade. When Nitro came out, we changed everything. And some of it was the little things that we did, like going live. That's actually not a little thing. That's actually a pretty big thing. Huge. But, you know, going live instead of being taped. The WWF show was taped. Our show was live. Most people would rather watch a live event than a taped event. Um, when I introduced the luchadors and the cruiserweights, that's something that had never been done before in any wrestling company that brought a, an entirely different energy to WCW and Nitro than existed in the WWF. When I introduced the reality-based storylines and I allowed wrestlers to use their real names instead of giving them, you know, goofy names like Isaac Yankum and, you know, Doink the Clown and that, that kind of silly stuff, um, it made our product much more relatable to an 18 to 34-year-old audience or 25 to 54-year-old audience. So it was a combination of all those things. And then on top of that, we've got the NWO. And on top of that, we got Hulk Hogan, you know, turning heel. So it was a combination of all of those things. But certainly Hulk Hogan turning heel was the, 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 the crowning moment, the most important moment. Well, we... While we talk about uh, wrestling being sports entertainment and, and we look at sporting teams as such and, and most teams are built around a player. So you look at the Lakers and they've got LeBron James and they build a team around him and, and the like and, and so on. Wrestling's so much different to that, isn't it? Because while you've got a franchise person like a Hulk Hogan, there are so many other characters that you can utilise around that that you don't necessarily build a promotion around one person. It's the utilisation of all your characters that makes it successful. It's so very true, very true. That's an, that's an excellent, excellent observation on your part. <clears throat> I often tell people that my approach creatively to wrestling <clears throat> is much like, and I always use restaurants. I don't know why I always use rest, restaurants as my, my metaphor, my example. But <clears throat> if you were going to open up a restaurant and you were going to have a buffet, you would want to have as big a variety of great food as you could possibly have as a selection. Some people like seafood. Some people don't like seafood. Some people prefer pork. Some people prefer chicken. Some people prefer beef. Some people are vegetarians. You know, everybody likes something a little bit different when it comes to wrestling. And one of the things that I learned from Ted Turner was not to program my product for myself. I, for one, like a very traditional style of wrestling, one that's much more athletic, much more believable, less flamboyant less dependent upon, you know, the crazy over-the-top characters. Uh, Bret Hart, for example, even though he and I don't get along well on a personal basis, his style of wrestling is something that I enjoyed much more than something that was more um, animated, for example. <clears throat> but that's just my taste. But just because I feel that way doesn't mean the audience does. And you've got to be able to satisfy every portion of your audience. That's why when you watch, in my opinion now, when you watch great wrestling, you have very serious kind of athletic, believable, you know, athletic contest type of, of a presentation. 
sometimes you have a presentation in another match that'll be more comedic and be more lighthearted and be more fun. Sometimes you'll have one that's uh, th- that feels a little bit more over the top, maybe a little bit more of a character type of match than a reality-based type of match. And that's okay because you've got to you, you've got to build your product not around one person, as you say, but you've got to think about how do I satisfy every segment of my audience. Yeah, it's a, a, a lot. Go, a lot of thought goes into uh, to putting a show in. There's no doubt about that. As uh, a lot of promoters right around the world have experienced a, a new product, I suppose it's coming out for the American audience is AEW and, and the Bucks' new product. If there was one thing that you could say to them not to do in regards to going head to head against WWE, what would that be? Well, I don't think they're going to go head-to-head against WWE, number one. I would advise them not to. Um, I think, and I want to be careful how I say this, because you know how wrestling fans are. I can make a statement like this, you know, the sky is blue, and by this time tomorrow, people will be saying that, you know, Eric Bischoff said the sky is no longer blue, it's yellow. (laughs) It's the nature of the beast. But I think... If I was advising them right now, my advice would be to grow slow. Do not grow too fast. Um, Manage not only your expectations as producers and owners and wrestlers, talent, but manage your audience's expectation. Because if you heighten expectation, keep in mind, they haven't even produced one television show yet. Um. There's a big, big buzz on AEW. Uh, I, w- I was just in New York last week, uh, or two weeks ago for WrestleMania, and I, I saw tons of AEW merchandise everywhere, which is great. Mm. That means fans are excited. They're aware. They're anticipating. Keyword there. They're anticipating something really big. But if you don't manage that expectation, it's, it's easy to disappoint people. In other words, you can set yourself up for failure by raising the expectations so high right off the bat that unless you really deliver and actually over-deliver, because people will allow themselves to get more excited than they should. And if you're not careful, no matter how good of a job you do coming out of the chute or coming out of the gate, um, there'll be people that are disappointed because they've raised their own expectations unrealistically. So managing expectations are really, really, it's a tricky art. And the other thing that I would tell them, and it goes along the same lines, is, you know, creating momentum is a very difficult task. Probably one of the most difficult tasks there are in entertainment. The only one that's more difficult is maintaining momentum. And again, that's why I would suggest growing slow, managing expectations, and over-delivering not under-delivering on those expectations. And it, it sounds really easy, but it is really more of an art than it is a science. Eric, our time with you has uh, come to an end, unfortunately. There's probably about another 33 questions that we would <laughs> love to ask you, and hopefully we get that chance to do it another time down the track. Let's uh, remind our listeners 
where they can catch you. They can see you at uh, the Sydney Factory Theatre on Friday the 21st of June, which is my birthday, so have a great one there. <laughs> Saturday, June the 22nd in Brisbane at the Foundry Theatre, and then it's Sunday, uh, June the 23rd, back here in Melbourne at the Thornbury Theatre. All shows are 18 plus, and tickets are on sale now in regards to uh, to those shows. Eric, thank you so much uh, for your time today. We really do appreciate it, and uh, we hope that you enjoy your time down here in Australia and, uh, yeah, look forward to maybe catching up with you again down the track. I'm sure we will, and uh, I look forward to meeting you in person. I have meet and greet tickets, so I'll definitely be meeting you in person. <laughs> well, yeah, and especially if it's your birthday, we're going to have to go out and get a beer or two. I mean, that, that's a, a must-do. That is a must-do. We'll see you there, and we'll organise that for sure. All right. Thank Thanks, you Eric. Much, pre- yeah, thank you for your time. Eric Bischoff joining us here on The Turnbuckle. Well, there you have it, Eric Bischoff joining us for a chat, and it'd be fair to say, at his time, without a doubt, nearly the most powerful man in wrestling at one point through that period of the 80s. Well, I mean, as the only man who ever defeated the WWE for a significant amount of time... 83 um, weeks. Yeah, well, I mean, it's 83 consecutive weeks. There there were actually other weeks that they were in front, but... he really changed the business. Without what WCW did, WWE wouldn't have changed what they did. Yeah. And who knows where wrestling would be today. Did you uh, get anything out of that that you didn't already know? Um, I got a couple of things. Uh, but I think the main thing I got is just from someone who's been there and done it, uh, some of the advice for up-and-coming companies, such use AEW yeah. as the example. Build uh, slowly. Yeah. Um, and that's a, that's a good lesson in business in general. Yeah, it certainly is. Well, that was a, a great chat with Eric Bischoff. We really do appreciate it. And once again, we uh, if, if you're interested in wrestling, then you've got to be interested in this chat because some of the stuff that he'll talk about will be fairly amazing. The 21st of June at the Factory Theatre in Sydney. The Foundry in Brisbane on the 22nd of June, that's a Saturday night, and then a Sunday night in Melbourne at the Thornbury Theatre on the 23rd of June. All shows are 18 yes, plus. Yes, so you get the tickets from Destroy All Lines. Yep. Um, I think Oztix as well. I should have checked that. Oh. Uh, but tickets.destroyalllines.com and follow the links to Eric Bischoff. And we're going to have a beer with him after his show in Melbourne. Well, lucky it's your... I'm pretty happy it's your birthday that week. (laughs) Exactly. Thanks for joining us. A bonus edition of On The Turnbuckle. We'll try and bring you a few of these throughout the year if we can and if we get that opportunity to do so. And uh, we'll also have our other uh, podcast, of course, our normal podcast up and running this week as well. And uh, we've got a couple of uh, the, the minds behind MCW. Yes, we've got the fan engagement and social media media officer who will also be co-hosting which is re and we've got mikey J, the owner of mcw in which will be amazing so if you haven't heard that podcast jump onto mypodcasthouse.com or wherever you get your podcasts and download that as well we'll catch you again next week till then